You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have Eric Cutler, the uh, Chief Marketing Officer of Abacus Next. The website is also abacusnext.com. So, Eric, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me about uh, Abacus Next. What's the premise of the company? Well, uh, Abacus Next is the only fully integrated technology as a service solution provider out there that helps professionals manage and automate the complexities of their, their practice. Uh, we provide a, a cloud-based solution where we can uh, give our clients access to any application, anywhere, from any device, all in a, in a really compliance-ready, secure ecosystem. Um, our firm is uh, 35 years old, so we're a 35-year-old organization, started out as a software company okay. in, in floppies in the DOS days, and yeah. uh, now we're about 500 employees were headquartered in San Diego with offices oh, wow. in Toronto and Edinburgh, Scotland. And we've got uh, eight core products that deliver services to around half a million uh, business professionals worldwide. So what kind of business professionals and what are the products? Like some of them, what, you know, what's your flagship one or two? So our primary focus is professionals in you know, regulated industries that are that are dealing with PII, personal identifiable information, right? So really sensitive data, focusing primarily around the legal, accounting, finance, insurance, and government clients. We our flagship product is uh, we've got a, a couple really flagship products that we've either developed on our own or uh, brought into our fold through acquisition. Those are Abacus Private Cloud which is uh, a fully managed uh, private cloud for professionals to get off of IT and, and virtualize that into, into a private cloud environment. Uh, we've also got products like HotDocs, which is a, a document automation and assembly engine used in four out of the five top banks in the world. So we've got, like I said, we, we've got about eight different products. And, and what's kind of unique, I think, about us in a number of different respects, but in particular, we offer and work with Fortune 100 clients, but we also can offer that same enterprise-grade technology to the uh, to the SMB market. Let's drill a little bit deeper into the examples. So, for um, you know, for record keeping, and uh, you know, what, what kind of products are there? And then maybe you know, we'll go to the financial side. Like, what do the products do? Sure. So, I can kind of cross our our value proposition across really about six different use cases. Um, from a from a case management perspective, we've got uh, a handful of case management platforms that are uh, focused on different professions. So, for example, legal, 
accounting CPAs. They they require what what some would think from the outside uh, very similar functionalities, kind of CRM functionalities. But really, if you're inside a, a CPA, you really need uh, very particular workflows, and and that's what our our, our platforms that are uh, tailored to their market provide. Legal, no different. Legal, again, you know, if, if you you spent some time working with law firms, but outside, yeah. you might not think that you might think, oh, they just need a more of a kind of a CRM uh, functionality. Well, you know, law can be incredibly complicated, and it, it, we have platforms that are tailored not just for legal professionals, but within the profession, the the different areas that uh, an attorney would practice in. For example. A wealth management, you know, someone in in, in wealth uh, would require different fields and workflows and rules based rule based calendaring than a immigration lawyer, as an example. And we have custom, uh, you know, platforms for each of those type of individuals and firms, so that way they can kind of maximize technology uh, when you know they need to leverage it in their in their practice. Well, let's talk a little bit more about lawyers. I know about them, and, and you do. What are <laughs> some of the unique pain points they have, and you know, what are some of those solutions you have that have helped them? You know, maybe pick a few practice areas. So, I've learned a lot, and I've been with Abacus Next for about four years now, and uh, I have learned a tremendous amount about how the inner workings of law firms vary from from area to area, but also kind of the the common thread uh, across many firms and and one of the big common threads is uh the data security right there's a huge amount of sensitive client information which lawyers have a have a duty and obligation to safeguard they have a legal and ethical obligation to protect their clients data many in many cases the individual or the firm's knowledge of how they're using technology and and the the true cost and exposure that they have and the risk is there's a real big gap there and mm. and that's something that you know a, a business owner might may underestimate the cost of their technology both the financial cost but also the uh the drain the technology can have to their firm by a magnitude of of 5 to 10 it's really quite astonishing once you kind of get in the weeds of a firm to see how much that they've been exposed and in some cases they've already you know had some actual real client data exposure and they yep. are completely unaware of it right because as as expected uh you know attorney should be busy worrying about their their firm and the growth and their clients and not be experts in technology in the same way that i i would you know encourage you never to have me represent you in court because I will do a horrible job. <laughs> that is not my yeah. core competency, right? So I, I shouldn't expect that that law firm decides to put the IT burden of running technology on themselves. But in many cases, that you know that is the case, and and or maybe they're trusting uh, an individual or a or a small you know consultant type firm to run a 50 to 100 person law firm, and and that just there's there's a lot of exposure in the and the the governance, the compliance is starting to merge from a hey, it's nice to have your data secure, and to a, it's now a requirement. People are looking at other compliances like HIPAA, and bar associations are starting to adopt similar data security practices to law firms. 
Yeah, I've seen, for instance, you know, uh, there's still a lot of lawyers out there that use AOL or Yahoo emails, which is crazy, you know, uh, for many reasons. Or, you know, I've had uh, two attorneys that, uh, you know, they were attacked by ransomware. They had to, you know, buy Bitcoin, for instance, and pay off the ransomware. Otherwise, all their client files are, are locked up and they're they're screwed, you know. So those are just two examples I've seen being on the outside. What's interesting about those that, that first example, the AOL address, I don't think yeah. from a security standpoint, I, I'm 100% in with you. And that seems pretty logical when someone says AOL, you oof. If I also think there's the unknown cost of how that, that address appears and impacts new business, especially when you think mm. of millennials, the person, yeah. if you just grabbed a millennial off the street, which is now, let's face it, you know, they're 40% plus of the workforce. They're going to be a bigger portion of many attorney client base out there and a growing portion. If you grab them off the street and I'm just going to stereotype, but I will and say, Hey, I'm going to give you an AOL address. They will look at you like you, you know, said, I'm going to ride a horse to work. Right. Um, <laughs> and I think there's a, uh, and this isn't necessarily, this is our business because we help, you know, we will help a law firm get off of AOL and migrate them into, let's say, a, a, a Microsoft, you know, Office 365 environment. I don't think mm. people realize how the, from a marketing, you know, new business perspective, having a Yahoo address or an AOL address or other, you know, like a, a Time Warner, you know, .rr, Comcast, any of those, how yep. that can look from the outside in. And you might be actually losing business because someone sees that and says, wow, if this, this attorney is still on AOL, they're probably behind the times from a, a, a legal best practices. And that's pr probably not, couldn't be further from the case, further from the truth, but that's the perception. Perception can be reality, and then you have missed yeah. opportunities to get new clients. Yeah, that's true. That's definitely true. Um, what about for uh, some other verticals? You know, What have you seen or some of the unique pain points and uh, you know, things that you address? Well, and I actually just had this conversation earlier today with a, a CPA firm. So I'll talk about CPA firms as an example. Okay. For CPAs doing taxes, they, they use what's called an electronic filing identification number, an EFIN. It's basically the key to filing for their clients. EFINs are, are unique. They're like a MAC address or a social security number for the firm. Each CPA has one. And sometimes they're actually passed down from generation to generation. You know, my, I might pass it to, if I'm a CPA firm, I might have my daughter start working there and then I look to retire and she continues the EFIN onward with the firm. So cyber criminals know this. It's They know that the EFIN is key for a CPA to file taxes. So cyber criminals will break into a firm, usually in the, in the kind of when everyone's scrambling starting in February in the coming months before April, they know that that's kind of when the activity is highest to kind of slip in through the side. And, and remember, most, most bre breaches take about six months on average to uncover anyways. So they'll slip into the firm. And then in an opportune time, the cyber criminals will actually file that CPA's taxes on the CPA's behalf, typically with overstated numbers, to get a maximum refund without getting you know, rejected as a red flag. But they will change the return to a different bank account. So... By the time the IRS and or the CPA realizes what's going on, clients have had their taxes filed without any, you know, any involvement from them. Uh, the returns been redirected somewhere else. 
and the IRS has flagged that EFIN, so that CPA is dead in the water from an electronic perspective, and if they're going to try to even continue business, they'll have to do everything manually, which, as you can imagine, is going to be a little lengthier, right? And worse, they're, I mean, that CPA is, is, is all but dead, right? The clients will move on. And really, that's the kind of unfair reality of the small and medium business in general, because if you look at something like, let's take the major cell phone carriers and pick on them, for example. All of them right. have added a data breach, right? Despite, right? despite giant security, despite technology budgets. So if you're a customer that's offended by that, well, you kind of really have no choice. You've, you know, the, the, the carriers suffered a breach and what, what happens? They send you a nice letter that says, sorry about that. You were a customer or you are a customer and we had a data breach. Your data was exposed. Here's a, mm -hmm. here's a free year of experience and uh, we'll see you at the next billing cycle. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you think about that CP that twenty person CPA firm uh, in Austin that got breached, you follow the same thing. You get breached. You send the same letter out to the clients. Sorry about your data was exposed. Here's a free year of experience. I can't wait to do your taxes. Well, will those clients come to you? They're not going to come. Yeah, they'll to run you. away. And they'll run away. Yeah, they'll they'll run the opposite direction. And it's unfair because that twenty person CPA. Uh, firm in Austin, Texas doesn't have a CTO. They certainly don't have a chief security officer with a $100 million budget. But that is kind of the reality is that the, the bigger businesses were so numb. We as individuals are so numb to the headlines that the, you know, the stock might take a little clip and it just kind of gets buried. Nothing happens. Everyone still uses them. The small to medium business, that CPA firm that loses their EFIN, they're not only having to start all over again from scratch, they lose business altogether, and now you've got 20 employees looking for work, right? And that's for for me, that's part of the reason why I love being an advocate because we really focus on helping those small and medium businesses fortify their defenses and not have that kind of exposure. Well, do the small, I mean, is it a perception from the small and medium-sized businesses that oh, we can't afford to protect the data, we don't know how, so just forget about it? Yeah, I think it's a it's a combination of things. I think there's, I think sometimes they they think that they're protected, and just you don't you only you don't know what you don't know. Um, you know they I've got I've got a router. It has you know it said on the on the Linksys box it comes with a firewall, so that's fine, right? Not realizing well routers you have to you have to update the firmware, right? When is the last time you updated firmware? What's a firmware? Exactly. You no know, clue, there's, right? Yeah. There's Right, and there's so much detail that can go in, and now it isn't it isn't like when I was a kid where you know ha hackers could it was a very manual job. There was no scripts, there was no automated system. Now there was no market really. I mean, nowadays we've got uh, a couple of nefarious countries out there that it's practically one of their top five, top ten industries that are have shops, paid shops, professional shops running scripts scanning constantly for holes and it's just a lot for that small to medium firm to keep up with i can't expect them to keep up with that i can expect that cpa firm to, to do my taxes you know in in the best way possible because they've been doing that for 25 years can i ex expect them to stay on top of the latest you know cisco release you know schedule and and understand and you know qa that microsoft patch before they deploy it to their environment in case it's one of those 
scurry, you know, a Microsoft patches that kind of goes a little sideways and Microsoft has to recall that. That's all that kind of stuff is really enterprise grade, you know, uh, technology and resources. And, and that small to medium firm just doesn't usually doesn't have the ability or even know that's possible. And they might also be reassured by things like, hey, I have a backup, right? I, you know, every Friday I have my USB drive, I back up a couple folders to that and I throw it in my glove box and I head home, not realizing that A, that is certainly not a backup, that is not business continuity. You know, they can, people confuse backup with business continuity. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if someone takes that USB drive, you've not only not, you know, kept your business safe, you've now just given the valley attendant or whoever grabbed that a whatever was on that backup drive. So there's just a lot yeah. of misconceptions out there. And, and I think that, you know, unfortunately, there isn't a, a, a resource that covers them all. You really have to find a good partner, whether it's Abacus Next or whoever that is, to help walk you through, you know, what your setup looks like today and where you need to take your firm. Well, how do you how do you sell the product without scare tactics? You know, and what are like some of the common objections people have? Like, oh, we're small, no one's gonna bother us. You know, we're just a five man CPA firm or something, a ten man law firm. That's a it's a great question. You know, I I think certainly the available stats don't lie, but I also think they can they can they themselves you can kind of get lost in the statistics. You know, for me, when I see that the you know the average employee receives, I think, about 12 to 14 phishing emails a day. You talked about ransomware earlier. That is really prevalent. But you're right. It's a, hey, they're trying to attack Target or Verizon or the city of Philadelphia. Why, you know, what interest of, uh, you know, a hacking group, cyber criminals do they have with my, with my, you know, 15-person law firm in Orange County? And really that 10 years ago, they would have probably been right. There are probably not the groups out there looking you up in the yellow pages trying to, you know, break into that firm. You know, nowadays, I think the it's, again, the scale of the attacks has made it where we now see all 50 states have data protection rules now, right? There are now, each state kind right. of has its own different version of the law, but we're now seeing companies publicly, and I'll use the word lambasted, I mean, they're, you know, here is here is a list of companies in the state that have had uh, a data exposure, a data breach. Associations are now talking about it. Bar associations, um, different associations for each professional group. It's coming to the point now, I think, where it's it's clear that something needs to be done to to protect both your firm and your client's data. So I don't think scare, it's 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 as much about scare tactics as it's just sitting down from a consulting perspective and, and asking the right questions. I, I said earlier, most firms don't know what they're spending on technology. Most firms don't know if there's how much they're spending on it total. They don't, they've never, no one's ever sat them down and helped itemize it. And also, you know, help kind of clarify things like a backup, you know, USB backup drive doesn't replicate the firm. If right. you're copying some files on there, even if you're copying a SQL database, well, you come into work on a Monday and someone's broken in on a Sunday and they took all the computers and everyone, all your employees are staring at you and you're holding that backup in your hand. Ugh. You can't really, it's not like you can plant that in the ground and grow everything. It doesn't, it doesn't backup. It doesn't image everything. It doesn't image your active directory. It doesn't image, you know, your file links. It doesn't, all the applications, all that work, uh, 
it's just really what it's a incremental backup of whatever you dragged into it. And I think I think it's really helping people understand that. So then they can honestly make the right decision for their firm. There are some firms that need more security than others, right? There are some firms that don't realize that they don't have, you know, data encryption, um, but they need to because that's a compliance. So a lot of it is really just end user education. Yeah, and I guess an example of how easy it is to attack is, you know, now, just as a for instance, you know, years ago, I remember I used to get those calls, your auto warranty is expired, you know. And it, <laughs> I read an article after that, that syndicate was blown up that they, they robocalled like a billion plus calls. So the wow. scale of this is enormous. And like, you know, recently in the past month, I've been getting probably 10 to 15 robocalls a day. And they're actually somehow getting, they're masking the caller ID even though I have caller ID. So like, you know, I got a call from John Smith in Arkansas and I called back and his voice was says, Oh, Hey, this is John Smith. Leave a message. And you know, he called me like 15 times over the past three weeks. And I actually talked to the guy and said, I didn't call you. So, you know, that's just another example of what's happening. And I'm just an individual person. It's not even business and they're attacking. And even on personal email, I get phishing and I get all kinds of scams. So, I guess that would answer the question of no matter how small or big you are, you need protection. And the the return on investment, it, it's a great point. The the scale of the attacks are are now to a point, like I said, it's it's now, I mean, it's a real billion dollar industry. And, and it's been enabled in part by cryptocurrency. There's a lot of benefits that cryptocurrency, you know, ha, can bring, but there's also some of the challenges because you can, you know, if I, if I try to... <laughs> you know, blackmail you or do something with ransomware. And then I give you my PayPal address. My, my ransomware scheme is going to be very short lived, right? It's mm. very trace or here's my uh, Wells Fargo account, right? But things like <laughs> cryptocurrency yeah. help enable um, some of these other groups out there. Now the challenge of cryptocurrency is trying to get someone to pay you that has no idea how to buy, you know, a, a Bitcoin or a Litecoin. That's a whole other problem. But um, yeah, right. to the scale of those, those settings, I get the IRS calls. You know the the robo IRS call. That's not really the IRS. Yeah, they're going to arrest the you. They don't pay them ten thousand dollars. Exactly, and and or the ones that match your first uh, three digits of your phone number. I've noticed that that is also a a tactic that uh, you know they'll match. You know, if your four five six is the first, they'll not only match the area code but obviously the first three. And I'm sure some cyber criminal case study has probably proven that. If you match those digits, it looks somehow friendly or like it's somebody that you would know, even though that doesn't make sense. Well, it looks like a um, local call, so you're more likely to answer. Yeah. Right, not only local, but somehow closer to you because it's the first three digits. So, yeah, there's all these tactics, and, and if there's, you know, when there's money, there's people to abuse it, and that's really the sad reality. So those those small firms, are people still targeting, you know, the, the Vons and the Whole Foods of the world? I, absolutely. But from a scripting level, if I can remotely install, if I can remotely uncover an open port and install ransomware and it starts encrypting a thousand files a minute, you know, uh, and I can do all that at a huge level, huge scale, all the phishing emails, if just 0.01% convert, but I'm sending billions of emails out there, there's going to be a lot of firms caught up in that. Yeah, you mentioned that the average attack isn't even discovered for six months or intrusion. That's correct. So either the industry statistics show that it's about a six-month discovery window. Now, sometimes some of the bigger hacks, uh, there's a top four accounting firm that 
was breached and it I believe it was I want to say a year and a half uh, before they uncovered that and and that is that's something else that I think not only have the the increased the attacks increase they've also gotten a little more tactical I talked about the EFIN that's a very tactical thing when you think hacking and breaches you think you know the guy with the, the mask over his head you know just sure. grabbing whatever he can grab this is something where I'm going in and filing taxes to get the return transferred to different place. There's there's hackers that go in. There was a, a, a pretty famous one on a law firm on the East Coast that was working with uh, two firms that were about to be acquired, uh, I believe by Intel, I want to say. And uh, hackers got in and essentially got that information, right, and understood that they were in the final negotiation stage and they put money into the stock market, right? So this, they weren't there to steal credit cards or social security numbers. They were there to get insider trading. And if you yeah, think about crazy. if someone if someone was in your, your, your business for six months, what would they see? They would not only be able to get everything, of course, in one fell swoop, but they would also see the patterns of your behavior. They would see your emails to your wife or husband or significant other. They would know when your vacation schedule is like. They could just sit there and not do anything, but completely map out everything that's going on in your life, as well as take that opportune time when you're going to go on that Alaskan cruise and be offline for a week to then take control of your email, to then talk like you, even if English isn't their first language, and do some really major damage, right? So that is the truly scary part is there are firms probably, you know, with employees listening to this podcast that have an intrusion that aren't aware of it. So how do you approach, you know, clients? What do you do? Do you do an assessment of uh, their current state of security and identify any breaches up front? Or, you know, what's the process that companies go through to work with you? Yeah, so you're absolutely right on the money. We we first do an assessment, you know, both understanding from the the, you know, the stakeholders in the company, uh, what the environment's like, understanding what their goals are. What are their technology goals? Some some firms have, I talked to a firm earlier today, one of our clients that they do not have a cloud-first strategy. They are, the IT guy kind of chuckled when I brought it up because they're a thousand-person firm, but the cloud is far off in the distance. And uh, about a week ago, I talked to another about similar size law firm where we need to move everything in the cloud like yesterday. So every firm is is different, both in how they, what their goals are, and also then understanding actually what's happening underneath the the, the curtain. So we do a, a technical assessment where we essentially run uh, an analysis over everything, understanding what's going on within each network, understanding you know where where the uh, some of the skeletons lie, and then building a, a custom solution uh, for them to move into. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about security because that's the, you know, the most uh, adrenaline triggering stuff, but <laughs> you, know, you have other products like you mentioned. So what are, you know, some of the other reasons uh, that firms will work with you? I guess you mentioned, you know, they have a, a lame CRM that needs to be updated, you know, their perception, having uh, branded emails. You know, what what else do you do majorly for, uh, for companies? Sure. So really the, if I had to boil it down into into three areas, it would be how they're managing the practice, uh, their how they're managing their documents and templates, and 
and then of course the the overall uh, environment, the cloud. So we talked about cloud. I think we we hammered that in. The 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 management is I think uh, and the the workflows are really key. And we've got a number of as I talked about earlier, uh, a number of of different ways to help a firm succeed. A lot of times firms are doing really repetitive stuff that they don't realize can be automated. We talked about earlier about immigration law firms. If you're doing, let's say if you're an immigration law firm, you're you're probably getting a lot of walk-ins if you're in a highly traffic area. So you're you're not only getting appointments over the phone, but you're getting people walking in and every time they walk in you're you're doing uh, intake. That that itself can be automated and you'd be surprised. I mean, how many businesses, if you go into, you know, a dentist's office, it can be a crapshoot of whether or not they have a system or a clipboard. And there's more often than not, businesses are still doing double or triple the work that they should be as opposed to having a tablet out there that intakes the system and automatically, you know, uh, pulls in that information and does maybe additional workflow after that uh, that new prospective client information is received. If you're in, in that immigration law firm, mm -hmm. you're doing visa extensions, right? You're you're extending visas. That there are 12 to 14 steps that should happen. And in in a, a, a non-automated firm, that's a human doing every one of those steps. It could take half an hour uh, to process, and and now you're at scale, right? So it just requires a lot of time, and that's something that. Uh, our products can actually help automate many of those workflows to relieve the time and help reallocate that person, maybe on something else, maybe reallocate the money you're spending on that person into more marketing dollars or another lawyer right. or something like that. So, Yeah, even uh, another example is law offices and doctors. You know, uh, the intakes are on paper. <laughs> so Horrible. furthermore, it's annoying to the person to have to write all that stuff and it's stupid you got to scan it in their handwriting may not be readable all that stuff so i think it also doesn't it send a message to you if you go into a, a business and you're filling it out by hand versus a a computer kiosk or a or a tablet i think again you know the it's sometimes it's 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 an increasingly competitive field out there for almost anybody unless you have the benefit of just being so great it isn't uh, but most businesses, most firms out there are competing against somebody else. And that first impression, right, can can mean a lot, whether that's the AOL address or your domain.com address, whether that's coming in and seeing the kind of beat up clipboard with a piece of paper that <laughs> then have to hand to the man or woman behind the counter, right, or then they type it in, right? That yep. the, It's, it's kind of nice when you go into a business and they have everything all automatically set up. They have a form online that they it consumes it into their CRM or practice uh, engine. That is, I think, I, I feel, and I'm technologist, but I'm a total geek about everything, but I feel a little more comforted to know, hey, they kind of have their stuff together here, right? So I think but then, that, that's kind of the trade-off, though, is the um, the firms that do have that stuff, the businesses that have it, they do it in a, in a way that just feels dehumanizing. So <laughs> even if they have that kind of stuff, it's like, don't talk to anybody here. Fill this thing out, you know, on the iPad or whatever. And it, they they still do it the wrong way, in my opinion. True. I, I I can I can provide feedback for that, but that isn't something that we train on. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, if you don't mind, just you know, let me know your thoughts on it, and then we'll move on. Yeah, I I think uh, there's how you implement technology and how you leverage from it. 
I, I, I don't know that many people realize that technology can be uh, a differentiator against a competitor. You know, we're all, you might have, you might be in the accounting space and have local other accountants, right, that are, that are kind of competing for uh, the same, same type of business. And, and if you don't talk about it and somebody else talks about it, that could be the, the main reason and you'll never necessarily know why they went to a, a competitor. So I always kind of think about how I can mm. help educate our clients to give them a little bit of an edge, even more value than what I think that our technology provides to them. Why not talk about the fact that, hey, we have a, we have a secure client portal. It has 256-bit data encryption, so your data is safe. Instead of having to email me your receipts, right, and or hand them to me, right. you know, you can actually pull them into this portal. You can actually uh, give me the data in a secure way that doesn't expose it. And we've invested a lot of money and technology into protecting your data. I think if if a if a firm has that conversation with me. I think if it compared if I if I go get a second quote from somebody else and they don't talk about that and they make me fill out the clipboard and if they have the you know the AOL or Comcast address, no offense to either of those companies, I'm gonna have a different perception. Right. So I think it's I think it's right. helping educate people not only how to implement technology but how to leverage from it. Well very good. So what's the best way for uh firms and employees listening to uh to engage with you and to talk to you about their needs? Well, uh, our website, abacusnext.com, has uh, our our overarching uh, coverage of of what we provide and talking with one of our technology evangelists and and really sitting down and understanding what you have. I think from a value perspective, it's something that that we do for free. So sitting down and understanding what your, your firm looks like, having that assessment, and if it makes sense to you know, rethink how you're doing IT, at least get a second opinion. Even if you feel that your IT is completely solid, your technology is great, everything's everything's rosy and perfect, I would at least think a second opinion would be, be, would be worth it. And then you can sleep well at night knowing that at least you're, you're all set up the way you should. Or don't sleep well that night, but sleep well in, in the near night after you get onto an Abacus Next Solution. Mm, okay. Well, very good. I appreciate you coming on the call, and uh, it's been pretty interesting. I learned a lot of good stuff. So, Eric, thank you. Thank you, and thank you for having me in. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.
This call is being recorded. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Dr. Ellen Berg. Uh, she's the founder of a company called Alto Predict. So, uh, Ellen, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Great. How are you? Good. Good. Tell me about uh, Alto Predict. What's the premise of the company? Yeah, so Alto Predict is a data science company founded to promote adoption of non-animal alternatives for product safety testing. It's focused hmm. specifically on human in vitro technologies. Okay, um, what are human in vitro technologies? <laughs> Great question. Um, yeah. Primary cell-based assays, organs on a chip, organoids, bioprinted mm. tissues, uh, microphysiological systems, stem cell-based uh, assays, all in vitro human-based based assays. The idea is to use okay. these in place of animals for testing for safety. Yeah, I, I just have the, you know, I'm not on the inside of this. I just have the general feeling that it seems like less animals are being used for testing, and I think the public it's just my guess. The public feels like everything's okay now and animals aren't used very much or, you know, if they are used. It's just laboratory mice, which, you know, I guess not a lot of people okay. seem to care about, but is that true? Or what, you know, what, what do you see? No, <laughs> no, it's not true. <laughs> that's okay. the problem. That's what I wanted to know. It's the, an urban myth. Yeah. 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 So the reality is despite all of these innovative advances uh, in these, uh, in these methods, and and so many different platforms that have been developed over the last 10, 15 years, there's a tremendous lag in adoption by product developers to use these systems. The reason is, the reason, multiple reasons, there are um, uh, many, many options, right? Many different platforms, crowded markets, um, many different stakeholders are involved in acceptance of these assays and replacement of animals. Um, and the data from in vitro assays, it's complicated. The analysis isn't trivial. And the validation data from these, these new platforms is either very limited or very hard to access. We often see you know, publications uh, where the data are in supplemental table four. <laughs> <laughs> in an Excel okay. table. And so they're not, it's not easy to, for the people who need to uh, agree to use these to gain confidence in their use. So our yeah. idea is to um, uh, provide, uh, to get, build a platform that provides easy access to this validation data. So we're going to collect it and integrate it along with building specialized analytics and data visualization tools, sort of bring business intelligence <laughs> analysis to this complicated uh, scientific data. All right. Well, uh, another misnomer or, you know, misconception in vitro, you know, I think of in vitro fertilization, that doesn't mean in the body. I think in vivo is inside a human body or inside a, a, an organism's body, but what's in vitro? Correct. Outside in a in dish. A, yeah, outside in a dish. Exactly. Exactly. And the, okay. um, you know, the challenge is how do you model in vivo biology, complicated in vivo biology in vitro? But 
you know, the technologies are developing. We're, we're able to culture diff many different cell types now and uh, from stem cells induce the differentiation into things like neurons that you can't really get human donors to volunteer their neurons for testing. Right. So, um, but uh, it, 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 and I think um, one thing that hasn't been appreciated is that, uh, you know, toxicology safety testing is just a very conservative discipline. And people are very cautious to adopt new things unless they're really sure it's going to be better. So we need to right. apply now data science to pull together all the data to evaluate these platforms and, and test them uh, really well and, and determine whether or not uh, they're predictive uh, and for, for whatever application uh, product developers need. Well, what's the assumption that animal models are predictive or they're just uh, some points of data along the path towards a clinical trial or what's the common perception right now? Yeah, it's, it's legacy. You know, the concept many, many years ago was, well, if, if something is toxic in an animal, it's more likely to be toxic in people. Absolutely true. However, as we have learned more and more in depth about the mechanisms of toxicity and the drug mechanisms, we now appreciate how different animals are. Even their, uh, you know, gene sequences are, are slightly different enough to make uh, to make uh, uh, to um, make it uh, us unable to predict effects, of, you know, from animal testing, and. The other reason is a lot of the in vivo animal data is um, uh, in silos within pharmaceutical or or, or uh, consumer products companies, and nobody has access to that. So it's been hidden, if you will. The lack of prediction predictivity of animal testing has uh, has really been uh, been hidden. It was the best we had at the time. But as we learn more about the details, the mechanisms of human biology, um, it's uh, quite remarkable how different people are from animals, and it makes makes us un, you know realize why you know drugs still fail you know thirty percent of the time for toxic safety in people. Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess we don't know if these other methods are the best available because, like you said data science has to be done on them to evaluate that, right? Yes, and actually that's where I come in. I've I've been I've spent the last uh 15 plus years developing a human in vitro platform uh using human primary cells to model different aspects of tissue biology and we've actually successfully discovered a number of novel mechanisms of toxicity that we have used uh, and, and developed com as commercial assays and are helping, uh, you know, uh, people in in uh, 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 drug discovery select safer molecules. And we've shown predictivity of these assays. So that's where I come in because I have had the ex experience of once we identify assays and test them and show uh, do the do the work to show how well, they predict uh, human outcomes. 
we just can add do the same thing for uh, many other different platforms. Hmm. All right. So, what is uh, I don't know if it's the word typical is right, but what's an example of uh, your platform? What constitutes it, and you know, what what have you tested it on, for example? Yeah. So uh, right now we're working on our beta version of the platform where um, I have a we have a partnership with uh, collaborative drug discovery which is in uh, chemical chemioinformatics uh, uh, biological database commercial database um, to uh, showcase um, a collecting uh, various in vitro assays that are relevant to cardiovascular toxicity and the area we're working on is the um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which is our class of drugs, oncology drugs, that are efficacious in oncology but, but cause cardiovascular toxicity. And we pulled together uh, a number of different assays that cover different mechanisms of cardiovascular toxicity. And I think the field hasn't really appreciated how many different mechanisms there were and that these, this particular class of inhibitors actually hits, uh, some of them are, have different mechanisms of cardiovascular toxicity. This is important because well, if you're the, going to, yes. Right. Okay. Let's, let's get some details. So what, what's the yeah. goal of the drugs and what, what do you mean by toxicity? What happens to the heart? So, uh, cardiovascular toxicity outcomes in patients would be heart attack, increased heart attack. Um, hypertension, so you get increased blood pressure, or you're at risk for um, thrombosis, stroke, um, and those sorts of outcomes. And so what we see in the clinical studies with drugs like uh, like trametinib or mechanist, which is a, a drug that's used in uh, melanoma, is that there's an increased uh, number of patients who take that drug who have uh, cardiovascular, talk, you know, these events are the number of events are increased. So when so what we started are the, to the look, pathways that are commonly thought of now, and you know what are the new pathways that it looks like you're figuring out? Yes. Yeah, so uh, so um, most people for cardiovascular toxicity they they test heart cells. So these are cardiomyocytes, and there's some nice. Uh, new assays using induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes, and they beat in a dish. Um, so uh, that assay has been used for – people have looked to that assay to predict cardiovascular toxicity. Well, it turned out for trametinib is that it wasn't active in that assay <laughs> at all. But it was active in a different assay that modeled um, uh, the atherosclerosis uh, type, in, uh, type uh, of biology. So that's where the vasculature is inflamed, and that can also uh, result in, in increased uh, cardiovascular uh, uh, events, for example. And when we looked at a number of these different kinase inhibitors, um, we found that, that some of them were active in the cardiomyocyte assay. That's measuring arrhythmia. Um, mm. And then others were active in assays that measured uh, thrombosis potential. And still others like trametinib were active 
in the assays that, that modeled this, uh, you know, atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries that, uh, type of biology. And so just in our case study that we're working on now, we could see that this would be very, very helpful for um, our stakeholders to, uh, to be able to look across different assays and understand where they might be predictive of human outcomes and get comfortable with them. So um, that's the type of uh, the type of, pro of projects that we're we're doing. Well, how do you know if an assay is predictive or not? If you know, it still has to go on a path of multiple years to see if you know, in actual people. I don't know what phase it is of a clinical trial, for instance, but where it's yeah. actually used in people, and then you'd have to go yeah, back so to the assay and say, hmm, it, it was predicted here, but not in the people. So we're lucky because we're in these assays. We have te we're testing all approved drugs, so or failed drugs, and so you okay. have all of the clinical data from those to show you how predictive your assays are, and that's yeah, really smart. the yeah that's it's challenging because most uh, companies small companies who are developing some of these assays they'll only test a few drugs. But you need to test a lot to be able to determine how predictive the assays are. So that's what we're trying to do by integrating the data and supporting all of these vendors or people developing these assays to um, uh, run the data, run the, run the assays that, that are needed to show that they're, how predictive they are. Do the uh, failed drug drug makers want you to do this? And these successful or approved drug drug makers not want you to do this for fear that it may unmask problems with their drug. They've they've gotten over that. <laughs> the water's under the bridge, right? Um, and okay. for every company who has a failed drug who doesn't really want to look at it anymore, other companies are looking for those opportunities. Well, if I could fix that drug, then we've got something. So. Mm. Um, in this space, it's, it tends to be less competitive than efficacy. Um, so there's a lot more sharing of results among product developers in the safety testing area. So it's a little bit easier <laughs> than uh, than uh, some of some other uh, uh, research areas. So you mentioned I don't know seven eight different kinds of assays, organoids, you know, other stuff. What yeah. what assay yeah. are you? I would I would guess you're focusing on I know it's condition dependent I know but what type of assay are you focusing on and tell me a little bit about how it works Yes so I'm interested in integrating lots of assays the platform that I uh co-led the development of has 60 plus assays with many other endpoints. So I'm used to looking at a lot of different assays for different types of biology. Um, and I'm interested in uh, any, uh, in particular assays that have been um, scaled and uh, are shown to be reproducible. So it's uh, anything that, uh, that, uh, you know, and has a good, a reasonable uh, uh, scientific uh, rationale uh, uh, and that are available, especially commercially so that you can uh, run the reference drugs and uh, generate a large data set from those. I think that's mm. one of the, actually 
more challenging aspects. There are a lot of academic groups who will run an assay, but it's not particularly reproducible. So, you know, you can't run, make a large database because it's not uh, reproducible from day to day or, or week to week or, or whatever. So just by focusing on those that have, have gone, undergone some, you know, optimization and effort to, to get uh, reproducibility. Um, it's a reasonable number of assays and, uh, you know, we're, we're about the data anyway. So the more data, the better. Well, I would still think that, uh, you know, for instance, organoids, uh, maybe yeah. a heart organoid is well understood and pretty easy to make, but a uh, kidney one is like still impossible to make. So I would think you'd have to focus on, you know, maybe a cell type that works to make eight different kinds of assays for it. So then you could really get a robust sampling. Then you could test, you know, a hundred different drugs that affect just the heart. You're just using heart cells and heart cells are great because you could do seven different kinds of assays and they're repeatable and all that stuff. So I would, I would think you would have identified that, right? Yeah. So the challenge is, is the more complicated the system, so the like organs on a chip, the fewer, uh, the, the lower throughput there is. And so it's very difficult to get enough data to even be confident that your system is uh, showing the biology, the biology you expect. So there's a there's a challenge with uh, very complicated systems. And we've had more success where we have tried to just model a particular aspect, maybe, you know, a few different cell types or, you know, a, a not, you know, not the entire organ, <laughs> mm -hmm. but a particular, you know, set of uh, uh, biological process that's, um, that's, that, uh, you know, captures an aspect. And then by combining these together, that's where you can cover more of the biology. So this is kind of like the example you gave, you know, the heart. Maybe you can't reproduce a whole heart, but you can re exactly. reproduce part of it that's responsible for the beating aspect only. And then you look for arrhythmias, uh, you know, from a hundred something different drugs. And then maybe you exactly. add in another, another aspect of the heart, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we've been had success in doing that, so that has certainly uh, inspired me to just expand the the data that we can put together and try to under connect the 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 knowledge that we've learned gained by by testing all of these uh, drugs and experimental compounds in these assay systems. We've learned a lot about how biology works. So it's been very rich and uh, and very exciting. And the, the idea behind what we're doing is to actually make this reference data, validation data, completely open and transparent because um, we need that to have our stakeholders uh, at, be able to have access to the validation data and be comfortable in, in uh, these assays that uh, for them to, to bring these on board. So you're not having to give away some of your secret organoid sauce to tell me about this, right? Yeah. So it's it's about but what people really want is they just want to know they want to see that it works. They're more interested right. in that it works. Uh, the secret sauce remains with the different vendors who are running the assays mm. or or um, you know developing new ones. 
So what kinds of things have you learned about biology that uh, most folks may not know about or you didn't know about before you started doing this stuff? <laughs> um, most people don't appreciate the hierarchical nature of biology. So, you know, you've got a molecule, you know, DNA or a protein or a drug that might interact with, with, with a protein inside a cell. Uh, that protein actually has interacts with other partners, right? Complexes, pathways, and then pathways interact with each other inside cells. Cells interact with each other in tissues. Tissues make up organs, and there's all this communication between organs uh, until you know you've got the whole system, the whole, the whole, uh, the whole organism. And mm. for us, information that is closer to the clinical outcome, right, like a biomarker, something that's close to the clinical outcome, is more valuable than a gene sequence or knowing whether or not. Uh, there's a, uh, a gene expression, particular gene expression pattern. Genes are, I think of them as, um, uh, as, as you know, the lowest level. It's like the, the alphabet, right? And you can't yeah. build your understanding of a system by looking at the letters <laughs> because there is all of this modularity and hierarchical organization that you cannot tell from knowing and uh, gene gene sequences or gene expression. So um, I think well, that's I've the been problem just, because because you have to be reductionist in order to be able to do this, but you can't be reductionist because everything is interconnected and has a hierarchy. So what do you do? So that's where these these systems come in, these in vitro systems, because we're using whole cells, right? We haven't taken them apart mm. and isolated the proteins to do biochemical assays, um, and we we then test things in in uh, in uh, co-cultures. So you can start to put cells together, and they when they when you get the higher levels of organization, they just do different things than the individual cells do, and so. Just trying to do that um, helps you learn more about how the system is organized. So, uh, yeah, what's uh, a, I think that's an example yeah. of that. Because this sounds like juicy, really interesting stuff. Yeah, well, we kind of know this from gene knockouts, right? You take the whole organism and then you knock out the a gene. So you've got every the whole system intact, working, and that does that does help you figure out. Uh, uh, what things do. Um, let's see, some of the things that that uh, we've uh, um, uh, appreciated is how important tissue context is, right? So the uh, a fibroblast in a lung <laughs> is just very different than a fibroblast uh, that's, that's in the heart. And the reason is, is that when you put cells together, they talk to each other and they um, they create an, their own sort of environment that is not predicted by the individual cell types. So we we can look at clinical data from a you know from a clinical trial, look at the tissues to see what's going on in in human clinical, and then you go back to the in vitro systems. You just keep comparing what you see in vitro with what we know is happening in a tissue. 
and uh, improving our models, you know, slowly and surely. Hmm. So do you see uh, what you consider to be emergent properties oh, when you get enough cells emergent. together or different cell types? Emergent property, absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing is appreciation for um, how a, a, a drug target uh, has many can have a biology biological function, many biological functions that are quite different in, depending on the tissue and, and setting, and um, you know just completely remarkable. We keep. Think, uh, you keep teasing me with these uh, these ideas, but what are you know any specifics you can give that won't reveal things you don't want to reveal? Yeah, you know, sure. Like, like, uh, uh, yeah, so yeah. so uh, a few years ago, we were working with the um, uh, Environmental Protection Agency to characterize environmental chemicals across uh, these biological uh, assay systems, and we noticed in, in these human systems that they were. Uh, you know, responsive to um, uh, polycyclic aryl uh, hydrocarbons. So these are pollution, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the stuff in pollution. And okay. um, we noticed that, oh, it had particular activity. And uh, the EPA was all very concerned with, you know, pollution-related cardiovascular effects of, of these uh, these molecules, and what we observed was that uh, that these molecules were also quite active in immune cells and modulating the immune cells. So immunomodulation, not immunosuppression, but modulating. Mm -hmm. And it it turns out that uh, we were able to find a biology that is now used um, uh, has is now being developed for. Um, uh, uh, skin drugs. So they decided they exploited this particular uh, biology that that we discovered through <laughs> looking at environmental pollutants <laughs> mm -hmm. to become something positive. So, and I think that's a that's okay. a really good take take home message as well is that is that you can find a drug or a chemical that has a particular activity uh, uh, in biology that it might be beneficial or it might be detrimental depending on what is the indication and and uh, you know what is the status of the of the of the of the patient. So. All right. So um, I got a, a two part question for you. Since you're, you know, you're like eyes deep in complexity, let's see. So is it true that um, the percentage of drugs that are approved appears to be declining? And does that seem to, you know, that and your knowledge of biological systems being so complex, integrated, communicative, and have emergent properties, and et cetera, those two combined, does that tell you that looking for a drug to fix a particular biological problem is a, a fool's game and it needs to be more sophisticated? Or as long as we have better tools to figure this stuff out, we'll be fine? I think once these tools become more widely adopted, we'll see a big upswing in, in uh, approved drugs. The, um, you know, these haven't been around that long. And actually last year we had pretty good number of uh, approved drugs um, 
although most of them were for very small niche applications. But mm-hmm. I think that is pointing the way that, that um, we're going to be moving into personalized medicine for sure. And it's tailoring the drug to the patient, to the, the necessary biology or the, um, uh, because I think what we're learning from, from this work in terms of the, the complexity of disease biology or the variety of disease biology, that our classification of diseases is, is a little too, uh, is not uh, refined enough. And I think as we combine what we're learning from all of the health uh, technologies in terms of, you know, individual variation and uh, uh, particular, uh, you know, tight, uh, classifications of of, of patients, um, we'll be able to start matching drugs and drug combinations with the right patients. I think we're at a lull, but it's there. It's it's going to. Ex- I think it's going to explode. I guess to throw in even more complexity, um, you know, certain tissues are adjacent to or, you know, uh, intermingled with the microbiome. Yeah. What do you do in those situations? You, can you create oh, assays I, with the microbiome or without it? Because I would think that would affect function tremendously. Absolutely. We've actually explored a lot of um, uh, microbiome-derived products, and they're certainly very bioactive. and it makes so much sense that they can control. Um, I think we don't know a lot still, the diversity and the consequent, because they're very complicated, right? There's all these species, there's what they make, there's when they're uh, different combinations will be different. Um, And I think, and once we start to get the data from you know, comparing microbiomes across patients and really uh, analyzing that information, which we're just at the beginning of. I think we don't have a lot of actual information yet. Uh, You know, there's certainly some tantalizing reports here and there, but um, uh, I I think that is a, uh, an area that, that's it's going to be super important because we're a product of our environment and one of our biggest environmental <laughs> perturbations is our microbiome because it's sitting in yeah. our gut <laughs> and talking to us all the time. Yeah. And I like to think wow. of that, uh, you know, all of uh, we're responding to everything in our environment, right? Food, um, the air, uh, the people were around, dogs, pets. So we're mm-hmm. we are exposed to all of these inputs all of the time. That's why I'm surprised that you know drugs work, because it seems like yeah. I don't know, just like my <laughs> personal theory is that it seems like I guess we were lucky, for instance, with antibiotics. They were like the low hanging fruit, and perhaps they're all gone, or there's very few left. And you know what's the next complication we'll have to do, or the next sophistication in order to help people with disease. I, it yeah. involves so many things. It's like, I don't know how your brain doesn't melt down trying to figure out what to do and what complexity to have and not have. It's hard. Yeah, and I think we are we have a problem with legacy thinking. So 
Alzheimer's, right? The researchers are so wed to these old theories and they keep running the same experiments and trying to prove the same, uh, you know, mechanisms and, you know, they have not worked. And um, I think it's, it's very challenging to support and promote really novel thinking and novel approaches. And I can tell you from my experience, I had this idea to use human primary cells in vitro to try to model tissue biology. You know, this was 20 years ago. And I thought for sure, and we started putting together some assays and they were really um, helping us learn a lot. And I thought, oh, everybody's gonna do this. <laughs> and it turns out that nobody is. They don't. It's interesting, you know, why do, why don't innovations happen or move forward? And that's that's a very interesting. Um, it's psychology, it's legacy, um, and it's overcoming the a, a lot of these barriers. Um, and it's uh, very hard to get novel things published. I'm not going to name any names, but I had a very hard mm. time getting a paper published because in the field, it was believed that this particular protein could not be made by a cell type that we had identified it being produced by and mm. couldn't get the paper published. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's, it always comes down to people. <laughs> yeah. And I guess when you have, uh, you know, opinion getting in the way of science and fact yeah. and evidence and we got a big problem it's going to make it even harder to figure out treatment yeah. You know? yeah and i think the technologies are getting so complicated that not enough people are experts and this is a particular problem in data science in in the life sciences because there aren't a lot of experts um we're not training our uh, you know, biological researchers in, in really good data science. Um, and so we're missing out on, on a lot of good work because we just don't have the people to analyze the data. Hmm. Well, uh, you know, before we wrap up, may any, any other uh, case studies that, you know, you really liked or you thought were fascinating or emergent properties that just like, you know, you were shocked at? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm shocked all the time. <laughs> One I'm thing good. that I love about this moments. work is, yeah, is that we learn new things all the time. Um, I was particularly surprised that antibiotics were very active on normal human cells. And so some of these work not only because they attack the um, bacteria or, you know, target organism, but because they mm. actually recruit human biology. Uh, another interesting thing is we did some work with um, uh, with um, material science, and these were implant devices, implant, and the, the, they were concerned about a reaction uh, in, uh, uh, in clinical trials um, to some of the materials, but not others. And so we were trying to find out what's what's wrong with this material that it causes this reaction. And it turned out that it was actually the comparative materials were interacting with the human biology and suppressing 
<laughs> so it was the mm. control samples that were active and you know how they recruited this the cell responses uh you know was was just uh very interesting so um that's one interesting and and exciting application of these in vitro technologies is you can test all kinds of things in them and extracts and natural products and and uh as well as you know drugs or um you know any any uh you know consumer use products is there is there not a need then for an IRB since you're not you know um, working with a living creature but just uh, living tissue? No, what you do want to do is to make sure that the, that the cells, if they're taken from you know human donors, that they're consented appropriately. So that's right. something that you need to pay pay attention to. But the, the with new new approaches for growing cells and expanding them. Um, it's pretty easy to get enough cells these days, and of course, through IPS technologies, the stem cell technologies, they're they're you know manufacturing buckets of cells, so that's not a not so much of an issue. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Um, so, well, what's ahead for the next six months to a year, and then maybe you know three to five years for your work? What are you working on right now that you're you know, most excited about? What's coming? Okay, so you know, right now for Alta Predict, we're we're focused on getting our uh, the portal up and and some data visualizations uh, uh, in place, and so that people can explore the data, and our group of collaborators can help us uh, improve that and 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 tailor that. Uh, we have. Uh, Many different organizations have offered to donate data and expertise. Very interested in this. <laughs> Obviously, I'm I'm part of some groups that, um, uh, you know, that are their goal is to promote the adoption of these methods. So these are American Society of Computational and Cellular Toxicity, ASCCT, Society of Tox uh, Toxicology. Uh, groups, uh, governmental organizations here in the U.S., uh, for sure, the EPA, NCP, NIEHS, FDA, and there are a lot of NGOs that are that are very involved in, in helping us do this. Uh, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, the Humane Society, uh, their Biomed 21 program. So there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of groups who are supporting and, and helping us uh, put this together. So that's what we're going to be working on in the next, you know, six to 12 months is, is getting it going, building the community, um, getting feedback from, from, you know, research scientists to see how do you, how the data visualizations, uh, how useful they are, and then helping, uh, you know, different uh, develop assay developers, um, get access to researchers who will um, uh, visibility to their platforms and help them uh, commercialize them. So that's uh, that's mm. what we're doing there, for sure. Okay. Um, yep. So what's the best way for uh, you know for listeners to maybe get in touch, questions, collaboration, that kind of thing? What are some resources for them? Yeah, so, um, so we actually we have a website, um, altopredict.com, and uh, occasionally I'll 
Uh, we have a Twitter account, so either there <laughs> on Twitter or at our website, they can uh, they can stop in. There'll be certainly a lot more um, uh, news coming coming in the next few months through the website, but that's uh, that's probably the best place. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming, and uh, it sounds like you have 10,000 lifetimes of work ahead of you, but it's uh, exciting yeah. stuff. <laughs> it's all fun. Very good. All right, hold on a second. All right. Yep.